After yesterday's red-hot CPI report, which wasn't really all that red-hot, that's pretty much all anybody wants to talk about. Inflation, therefore rate hikes, end of story. Yet the yield curve in particular still heavily inverted. Why? Well, the standard answer is rate hikes, right? The Fed is going to crush the economy and the yield curve, the, the Treasury market is reflecting the fact that the Fed's going to hike rates and crush the economy. But is that what's really going on here? Or is there some other concerns in that marketplace? In other words, the details behind the CPI, when you get past the core inflation rate, owner's equity, rent, and all that other stuff, kind of suggested real softening already in the, in the economy. However, that wouldn't be enough. Obviously, it isn't going to be enough to get the Fed to turn around. Yet the markets are absolutely certain, as certain as markets can be, that the Fed is going to turn around relatively soon. So how do we get from red-hot CPI, where there doesn't seem to be any real thing that the Fed can hang its hat on and say, we need to stop hiking rates and maybe start considering cutting them, to what the market is thinking that, yes, even though you can't see it in the current inflation statistics, that is going to happen anyway. The list of suspects that are going to turn Jay Powell and the FOMC around is getting smaller and smaller. So we focus in on other things that could potentially disrupt the Fed's rate hike schedule, even if we can't see it in the current consumer price numbers. What are those things? Well, we'll get to that in a minute. I'm Jeff, this is Eurodollar University, and you know I'm gonna talk about the channels now. If you're watching this on Emil Kalinowski's YouTube channel, you're gonna to wanna to go over to the Eurodollar University channel on YouTube, find it easily, search for it in the search bar. Uh, you're gonna subscribe there if you need to, because uh, after a certain amount of time, not too much longer, we'll be posting videos exclusively at the Eurodollar University channel. If you're listening to me on Apple or Spotify or one of the podcast outlets, you don't need to do anything. Everything's going to be the same there. So thank you for joining me. Again, I'm Jeff from Eurodollar University. Let's talk about overseas dollar swaps. That's what we're meaning. Because when you look at overseas dollar swaps, people really don't know what they are. They don't know how they work. And they certainly don't seem to understand how they don't work. And more importantly, why they don't work. Now, I've showed a bunch of evidence charts in recent episodes, including the one I did just this week, because the Swiss National Bank has brought these dollar swaps back to our attention. Last week, um, the, Swiss, the Swiss National Bank reported a $3.1 billion, $3 billion in bids at its liquidity auctions. The Swiss National Bank holds regular weekly dollar auctions. Really, they call them dollar repos because it's kind of like a repo. Um, you have to put up collateral, which is important. We'll come back to that later in order to get these do the dollar funding from the Swiss National Bank, which the Swiss National Bank sources through these, what the Fed now today calls central bank liquidity swaps. I've always called them overseas dollar swaps. And as we'll see in a minute, back in the day, they used to call them a foreign exchange swaps. So whatever they are, they're swaps. They come from the Federal Reserve Bank of New York to the Swiss National Bank. Swiss National Banks hold these weekly auctions, which basically nobody ever bids for dollars because supposedly things are going really well. Last week, 3.1 billion, people said, okay, Credit Suisse, they're having trouble. But no, it wasn't just one bank. There were nine banks bidding for $3.1 billion. And then this week, the topic of our discussion so far, uh, previous video and all that, double the amount, 6.27 billion 
now with 15 banks bidding for funds. Now, 6.2 billion, not a whole lot of money, but the fact that there is anybody bidding in these swaps at all raises a bunch of red flags. And most people say, well, isn't that the point? If these banks can't get liquidity at the terms that they want from the private market, they're getting them from the Swiss National Bank through the Fed. Isn't that how these things are supposed to work? And the answer is definitively no. Use at, the, at these overseas dollar swaps tells you things are going wrong, not that they're about to be set right. Why? Well, let's 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 back up here. We're gonna need to we need to little, do a little bit of a historical review, and I'm gonna go all the way back to April 2008 first. Um, set the scene a little bit. April 2008, uh, even go back further. 2003, the Federal Reserve changed the way it operates. It's what used to be called the discount window, and they now call it primary credit. They set the rate above rather than below because Walter Badgett, old central banking doctrine, lend freely at high rates on good collateral. Those three things. Two, two of those are going to become very important. Essentially, the discount rate, the way it's supposed to work is that if banks are having trouble, they can't get access to the funds they need at the rates that they want or the rates close to what the Fed wants because the Fed wants money market rates to be somewhere around its target. If, if certain banks within that system are having trouble because the market's starting to have trouble, the Fed wants them to be able to go to what used to be called the discount window, now primary credit, and access funds, but they don't want banks going to the primary credit and funding all their activities, which is why you set a penalty rate. And so from 2003 into the 2008 crisis, that penalty rate was Fed funds target plus 100 basis points. In fact, the first thing the Fed did during the crisis was not cut the federal funds target in September 2007. In August of 2007, they reduced the penalty rate on primary credit. Why? Well, for a reason that you don't maybe realize, primary credit, like the discount window, stigma. Nobody wants to go to prime. If you're a weak bank that's, that's already experiencing funding issues, the last thing you want to do is show up on the Fed's H41, which means everybody knows you're in trouble, you're out of business the next day. So primary credit and discount window doesn't really work the way you think it does. Instead, what's supposed to happen is the Fed incentivizes other banks who are having no trouble funding to, to go to the discount window, access a little bit cheaper funding or access a relatively decent funding there, basically cost-free to the bank involved here, the good bank involved here, who then takes the funds, even though they're, they're borrowing them from the Fed at a higher penalty rate, and then relends them to other banks in the marketplace who don't want to show up on the, the discount window roster or the primary credit roster. So in other words, primary credit is supposed to work intermediating through dealer banks. And Citibank, the topic of our discussion in April 2008, was just one of those banks who was doing exactly that at the behest of the Federal Reserve. In fact, as this conversation goes, again, this is April 2008, looking back into 2007, a fellow by the name of Spence Hilton was recalling what was going on from his contacts or their con staff contacts in Citibank. Here's the quote. Coming back to one of the other questions that Don had had about what we were hearing about stigma for some of the banks, one of our better contacts, Citibank, as Jim mentioned, used to do a lot of arbitraging in using the discount window, the primary credit facility. On occasion, after they borrowed to relend in the market at a higher rate last year or so ago, they would call us in the morning 
to let us know how it was they were helping us out with the funds rate. So the discount window works not from the Fed to the troubled banks, but from the Fed to good banks like Citigroup to the troubled banks. They're essentially offering what is an arbitrage opportunity for good banks to arbitrage spreads between bad banks and the Fed. And Citigroup was only too happy to do it for a time. As Mr. Spence or Mr. Hilton Spence Hilton said immediately after that passage, he said, that has pretty much stopped cold. So Citigroup was arbitraging these spreads where bad banks or weaker banks were having trouble getting funds in the market. They, they were at least able to transact through Citi, who was sourcing this relending business at the Fed's primary credit. Citigroup said, you know what, we don't want to do this anymore because now our name is showing up on the primary credit list, and that's starting to cause problems for us too. But that wasn't the only problem. Citigroup was not solely afraid of the stigma using the discount window. There were other issues too that we also discussed in April of 2008, including how there seemed to be almost two money markets in New York. In New York, in the morning, the federal funds market would open, as they said, um, what did they call it? The federal funds market would open firm. That's use firm versus soft. And what that meant was rates in federal funds were unusually atypically high in the morning when federal funds opened, and then they would soften throughout the rest of the day. And the reason they would open high is because money rates in offshore markets, like money rates like LIBOR, were exceptionally high, firm, whatever they want to call it. So you had almost this bifurcation in New York money markets where European banks who normally conducted their business back and forth between Europe and New York would be paying higher rates in the morning. And then as the European banks drifted off for the evenings and into, into beyond, the nighttime beyond, exclusively American banks would then be transacting in federal funds at much softer rates where there was almost too much money. Not enough in the morning, too much in the afternoon. And so you had high rates, firm rates in the morning, soft rates in the afternoon. And what was the effective federal funds rate? It reflected the latter and not the former. Now, what was supposed to happen at this time? Exactly the same thing that is supposed to happen at the discount window. There should have been dealer banks intraday intermediating what, what, what was supposed to be another arbitrage opportunity. You could borrow yesterday on a term fund if you were a New York bank at the softer rates in federal funds and then relend them tomorrow morning to all these European banks who seem to be having dollar funding issues. But again, the topic of our discussion here in April 2008, that wasn't happening either. Gary Stern, who was talking about this, said, you know, hey, there's dollar swaps out there too. We've, all, we've already done the overseas dollar swaps, these foreign exchange swaps. So there should be more intermediation here. There should be more banks, dealers taking advantage of the intraday arbitrage opportunities as they would have been doing previous, as Citigroup was doing in 2007, as many dealer banks had been doing before the 2007 crisis erupted in August of 2007. As Bill Dudley, our favorite character here, Bill Dudley responded to Mr. Stern, well, we're not seeing much arbitrage. And then Spence Hilton comes back in, 
We are finding a great reluctance to do intraday arbitrage. We're hearing this from banks that in the past would do that from time to time, which then led them into the Citigroup discussion that we just talked about. In other words, the interbank, intraday, intergeographical dealer system was breaking down. And so funds that may have been available here in certain parts of the Fed funds market or repo or over here at the Federal Reserve's window were useless because they could not move anywhere. The dealers who were responsible for moving money from one place to the next, for keeping spreads in line, for keeping money markets what seemed like monolithic holes, in other words, money markets before the crisis seemed to be seemed to act as if a singular money market. Instead, they all started to break down and fragment because dealers did not and could not operate in the fashion that they were before. Citigroup didn't want to be stigma on the discount window. None of the dealers wanted to uh, to uh, to intermediate during the, for these intraday po air pockets and spreads and the illiquidity that were happening. Nobody seemed to want to take care of the the massive spreads that they could have, uh, they could have the huge opportunities between American banks and European banks at the time. It was as if the whole dealer network shut down, regardless of what the Fed did, because it was the commercial bank dealers that made all the difference. As Mr. Dudley would finally realize in June of 2008, so just a couple months later, two meetings later, um, talking specifically about these overseas dollar swaps, in contrast to U.S. auctions, the bid-to-cover ratios, and when he says uh, back up to when he says U.S. auctions, he means the TAF auctions, the local liquidity auctions that were, by the way, oversubscribed and heavily subscribed by U.S.-based subsidiaries of foreign banks. So banks outside, primarily in Europe, were lending, were borrowing from the Fed that they could, they could borrow from the from the Fed directly at these TAF auctions because the TAF auctions unlike the discount window, were anonymous. At least they were up until years later. So back to June of 2008, we've got TAF auctions, we've got overseas dollar swaps. In contrast to the U.S. TAF auctions, the bid-to-cover ratios in the ECB and SNB dollar swap auctions have risen sharply over the last three auctions. This likely reflects several factors, including the first one, a reduction in the willingness of U.S. banks to lend a term to, Euro to European banks due mostly to balance sheet constraints. Not stigma, balance sheet constraints. And this is June 2008. In June 2008, there was no Basel III, there was no HQLA, there was no SLR, there was no Dodd-Frank. Banks could still prop trade. In other words, ba uh, dealer banks in June of 2008 were balance sheet constrained for their own factors. And what were those factors? It should have been obvious. Gross illiquidity that had led to the demise of Bear Stearns, along with several other high-profile, uh, Carlisle, for example, um, essentially reminding the marketplace that there is a massive potential downside. The Fed thought Bear Stearns represented a victory. The marketplace took Bear Stearns as, holy crap, we could be wiped out. And of course, that's what happened eventually to other participants. The Fed's programs don't work, didn't work because all of it, the entire, all of these money markets depend upon dealer banks to police and intermediate spreads in various parts and various pockets 
of what are really very different, very disparate, disparate money markets spread all over the world doing all sorts of things. You've got collateral, you've got different countries, you've got different banks, banking systems, you've got rules and regulations and all sorts of stuff. Essentially requires balance sheets capacity to be able to do all these things. So the Fed offers funds at the discount window, Fed offers funds through foreign exchange swaps, but unless there are dealers in between to intermediate, it's really an isolated, uh, isolated case of not not really offering money to the entire marketplace that might be need that might need it. So who is bidding for these funds at these overseas dollar swaps? Essentially, what happens is. As illiquidity starts, as money markets become more difficult, less reasonable, less flexible, some of the weaker quality, weaker quality borrowers find that they're, that they're being charged more and more at higher, higher premiums. Even though that might not be reflected in the overall interest rate, the effective federal funds rate, funds rate for example, or repo rates either, they look for alternatives. And the first alternative they're gonna look for is the dealer bank, right? If Citigroup was able to relend or is willing to relend, it's probably the path of least resistance. Where Citigroup gets its funds doesn't really matter, whether it's the primary credit window, whether it's a Citigroup foreign subsidiary bidding for liquidity at one of these overseas dollar swaps, we still require these dealer banks to stand in between and intermediate. Now, some of these weaker borrowers might be lucky, I guess that's the word, and able to directly access something like the overseas dollar swaps at, say, the Swiss National Bank. However, the Swiss National Bank isn't so easy either. There's no unsecured lending here. You have to have eligible collateral, any eligible collateral that you would use at any Swiss National Bank auction in francs, you can post in these dollar auctions, dollar repos. But if you don't have that collateral, you're stuck being intermediate. You're stuck going to Citigroup because Citigroup is probably the only option which will take lower quality collateral. So if you're finding yourself shut out of funding markets because you don't have the right collateral, reputation, whatever the case may be, and you're finding the rates that you're being charged on dollar funding go up and up and up, you don't really have any options unless Citigroup is willing to intermediate on your behalf. And I don't just mean Citigroup, but Citigroup as the avatar for all the rest of the dealers. So if more, more and more funding participants that have lower quality collateral aren't going to be able to find funding anywhere. And here's the real thing. That doesn't show up in any of our statistics, right? Because what happens in SOFR? SOFR is only the best quality collateral. So as the marketplace shuns lower quality collateral, lower quality borrowers, more funds get channeled narrowly, more narrowly into just the best quality collateral, leaving these other participants at the mercy of the dealers who don't want to intermediate because they are, Mr. Dudley, balance sheet constrained. And they're balance sheet constrained, not because of regulations, but because of risk perceptions, mathematics, VAR, any of the number of, of balance sheet uh, mechanics that actually go into real money making. So what we see when dollar swap balances like go up like they have this year, what we're seeing is 
the system telling us it's starting to go wrong. Those with eligible collateral obviously are having trouble finding funding. They're seeing their funding rates go up. So they're accessing these dollar swaps at the Swiss, Swiss National Bank because it offers them somewhat of a lower rate. But what we don't know and what we don't see, but we can infer is all those who can't participate in the dollar swaps. So what the dollar swaps tell us is that funding irregularities have gotten so bad or so far that it's causing some participants to start to turn to alternatives like these dollar swaps programs. That is why when you see dollar swaps go up, it's not a good sign. It's a bad sign. It's a sign that things are starting to get really rough, that companies, banks are looking for alternatives and they're not finding them. They're not likely finding them in the usual places, which are their dealers. And it also tells us when dollar swaps goes up, dollar swaps go up, that it's likely the dealers are getting a little risk averse themselves. And it may be they're finding that there's an alternative there too, which is one reason like in 2011, as well as in March, 2020, hardly anyone accessed these dollar swaps until the Fed reduced the penalty rate on them. That's an important point I don't have time to go into today, but it goes, it, it, it goes along with the rest of the story here. The whole system depends upon dealer bank intermediation, not Federal Reserve programs. The Federal Reserve programs, using you, any use in them is essentially a sign that there's, there's trouble outside in the rest of the funding marketplace. So even though 6.27 billion at the Swiss National Bank is a drop in the bucket, the fact that it's not zero raises all sorts of warning flags, as does everything else that we've seen, including low SOFA rates at the end of last year, low T-bill rates, massive, uh, massive use of U.S. Treasuries and on a spike in the U.S. dollar. All of these things combined tell us exactly what they told Mr. Dudley in June of 2008, due mostly to balance sheet constraints. There is a reluctance in the money markets to do what money markets are supposed to do. There must be, from that we can infer, there must be a reluctance of dealer banks to do what dealer banks are supposed to do, which is the actual money. What is it he said? That has pretty much stopped cold. Now, I wouldn't go so far as to say that of October 2022. Maybe it hasn't stopped cold, but it has been stopped as much as it used to. So dollar swaps, not a good sign. Thank you for watching. I'm Jeff from Eurodollar University. Thank you again to, as always, to all the Eurodollar University members. If you're interested in becoming one, go to eurodollar.university, check it out there, see what the exclusive videos where we actually go into the nitty gritty details of how these monetary systems work, how important dealers are. And we're just getting into the real, real fun stuff about collateral and derivatives, synthetic repo, global reserve currencies, and how really there isn't a spot for the Fed to fit into all this. That's at Eurodollar University, eurodollar.university. Also, you can check out research that we have available, marketsinsiderpro.com. Also, the other subscriptions available, again, check out eurodollar.university. One more time, thank you to all the members, and I'll see you again next time.